Welcome to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. It's time to make mental health a normal conversation with your host, Shane Kelton. Hello and welcome to another podcast, Power, Strength and Vulnerability. Um, I'm your host, Shane Kelton, and today I'm going to be going talking in depth about uh, suicide. I've been meaning to record this podcast probably for the last four to six weeks, um, but then unfortunately, um, you know, Australia lost someone to suicide, uh, an Australian Football League ex-player um, named Danny Frawley, which a lot of you who will be listening will know him, um, and there'll be some of you that, that don't know him. Um, and it, it really hit me hard, um, as, as I know it did a lot of people out there. Um, you know, I went to an event last week and, you know, to see his mates talking about him was extremely difficult as well and brought more tears to my eyes. So I've held off on this one for, you know, so I didn't get too emotional um, and I wasn't too clouded or foggy while I was sort of going through all of these topics that I'm going to discuss today. So what I want to do is um, obviously pay respects to all those who, who have lost their life to suicides and suicide and you know, say to the families, you know, it wasn't your fault um, at all, but I will touch on more of that um, as we go along and we talk more about my suicide and just, I guess, my thoughts on the whole issue at, at bay. Um, but I do want to dedicate, I guess, this to Danny Frawley, obviously, in recent times. He's done a lot of – he did a lot of work for mental health and um, – you know, his family have now come out and they don't want to hide the facts and that has been a blessing, such a big blessing for um, everyone with mental health but also people that don't understand mental health because it's actually showing them probably a side of things that they didn't know about or they didn't understand before. So um, Alicia, um, my fiancé, lost someone, her mentor, to suicide earlier this year and that hit me really hard as well. Um, I struggled to get out of bed for a week um, and it was back to, due to the fact that, um, you know, I'd been in that position before where I tried to take my own life and I really did struggle coming to terms with it that, you know, this is what people are still trying to do these days um, even though we understand there is um, a lot more reasons behind why we're doing it and stuff like that. So, and as well as uh, many factors that, contributed to me not wanting to get out of bed that week and I didn't end up going to the funeral because I couldn't face the fact that a lot of the work I'm doing and it's all volunteer based feels like it's for nothing sometimes um there's a quote I can't remember the exact quote but um basically it's along the lines of people won't say things to your face um you'll never hear the good things or the bad things um so it's one of those things that's very hard for me. Sometimes I put everything into it and um, then we lose someone else to suicide or someone else goes down the bad path and I'm like, shit, what more could I have done? Which there isn't really anything more I could have done because I have put my heart and soul into it. And that's, I guess, what I want to talk about through this podcast as well um, in regards to you because if you're listening and you've lost someone to suicide, the facts are that you're going to have a lot of questions. Um I have a lot of questions for, you know, for Danny Frawley and for the for the young bloke that Alicia lost in her life this year. Um, 
to the, any other suicide. So I hear about, sorry, I just, um, I'm going to lose my train of thought a little bit through this because this is tough to speak about. Um, and I do apologize for that. So bear with me at times. Um, and all the suicides that I hear about, um, you know, I, I, I have those questions now. I know that families have those questions too. I had those questions asked to me in hospital after my suicide attempt. I have people come to me now and say, why did they take their own life? What, what was their thinking? Why did they do it? Uh, what could I have done better? What can I do next time? And hopefully I can establish through this podcast um, and answer a few questions that you might have. So I just want to talk about me um, and my suicide attempt and basically how it came about because I remember being in the hospital and I had a friend come in and he said, it's, it's only one girl, mate, there's plenty more fish in the sea. And it, it will always ring true to me because especially for males, um, we always think it's that one thing that might be that job that job that we've lost or that female that we've lost or um, whatever it might be. But sometimes, yeah, it is. I, I do hear a lot of stories about, um, you know, that being the case, whether it be male or female. Um, now, I probably will generalize towards males to a degree through this podcast purely because I'm a male and the statistics show that um, six out of eight suicides Three quarters of suicides are males. Um, but I am talking about both. So don't, you know, quote me on males. Males might mean all of, all of, um, the human population. Um, so my suicide attempt came February 2010. So, um, nearly 10 years ago. Um, I was 21. I had a, I was a, um, apprentice. Landscaper, pool tiler, working for a great boss, uh, working with a great, a great mate as well. You know, every day go to work, listen to SEN, listen to the sport. Uh, then we talk about footy at work. We'd work. Then on the way home, you know, we'd get slurpees. We'd do our thing. You know, we really enjoyed the, especially the summer days like today in Melbourne's 27 blue sky. Um, the dogs are passed out next to me basically because it's, it's really warming up, starting to warm up really quickly. Um, and it was days like that where I used to love, you know, get a slurpee and, um, and I'd go home and, you know, like, so work was good, uh, earning money, go home. Um, had a loving family, mum, dad, my brother, uh, played sport, uh, very heavily involved in football and cricket at the time, uh, fairly successful in both areas, um, had lots of friends as well. So theoretically, I had that, I had a basically a perfect life for a 21 year old. I didn't, I lived at home, so I didn't have any stresses, you know. There was money concerns, which I'll talk about in, in a little bit more detail, but realistic looking back now, there was, they were, they were my own stresses I was putting on myself. So to the outsider, you know, everything looked pretty, pretty perfect, I would say. Um, but there was a lot of, a lot of other stuff that was going on behind the scenes that probably people weren't seeing. And, um, at the time of my suicide attempt, uh, there was a lovely lady in my life, um, in a way. So, um, which I'll, I'll de- deal in more depth with later. But I guess I wanted to touch on how my life looked then because, it actually is almost irrelevant in the circumstances of the suicide. So that month was extremely difficult um, leading into the suicide. A lot of things changed in my life. Um, the female partner I was seeing at the time moved overseas and 
I basically I did have some money troubles. Now, with, with the money troubles, I was drinking every weekend, which a lot of 21-year-olds do. Uh, so I wasn't saving money and then I was comparing myself to my friends who were buying great new cars or starting to look at houses or, or whatever it might be at that period of time in my life. And I always thought growing up, you know, 25, I'll have kids, I'll have a house, I'll have a brand new car and, you know, I'll have this perfect little life set up for me. And I felt at 21 that that just wasn't going to come. Um, and, the lead up to the, the suicide was was rough, and there's a lot of signs and symptoms there that people, um, you know, can see. Um, you know, for instance, there was one day I was working at the uh, Australian Open uh, the week before the Open started, and um, I just started the medication, um, and I actually found myself locked in. I locked myself in a bathroom and was banging my head against the wall. So I started displaying um, self harm towards myself. That's that's what self-harm means. Lost me wording there. There we go. Um, I, I started displaying a bit of self-harm and I actually called my mum that day and said, I need to get home and um, this is what I've done. So I, I went and told the boss. I said, I got to go. I didn't really explain why, but um, he was fine. I think he understood in a way. Um, and there was this, I guess there was this unspoken bond between males that we kind of got it, but at the same time we didn't. So we just allowed it to sort of happen. Um, and, you know, I spiraled from there. I stopped sleeping, um, sitting on Skype all night. Um, and I basically, I made decisions that weren't going to help me going forward. And that's what led to the suicide attempt. But what also led to the suicide attempt is the eight years prior. And a lot of people get lost in the month or the week or the, even the year prior to a suicide or a suicide attempt when realistically the person going through what they're going through has probably been battling bits and pieces of this their whole life or for 10, 15 years. Some instances, no, there's a like PTSD or there's something dramatically changed in their life um, and something will come up, a depression of some sorts will come up. Um you know, especially when it comes to splits with, with kids involved. Um, I'm even going to arm a lot in this, which is, is very unprofessional, but um, hopefully you can bear with that as well. And I do apologize. So, you know, for me, it was eight years in the making. It was eight years of pain within. It was eight years of hiding my feelings. It was eight years of out, random outbursts. And I guess that's what I want to talk about is, I guess, my symptoms through this period of stages. Whereas my... Because this is what led to the suicide attempt. It wasn't the month leading up. The last month was like final triggers and warning signs and stuff like that. So I'll hopefully get to that as well. So at 13, you know, I went to high school and as most people do, um, not anything strange about that. And I remember I used to come home from school and I used to call a friend and I, I was actually on the phone and I was very suicidal to her on the phone. Uh, she was my age and... You know, in hindsight, and if you out there is going through these symptoms, you need to call an adult, you need to call a counsellor, you need to call a doctor, you need to speak to someone who's um, more mature than a 13-year-old um, kid. And if it's one of your friends that's going through these this thing that, these things, then you've got to speak up about it to an adult as well. Like I have this question so many times when I go to schools is, oh, I've got a friend that's going through this, but I'm scared to tell her parents. And I'm like, are you scared that you'll lose your friend f- and they're like, yes. And I'm like, well, the thing is you can pretend it's not happening, save your friendship, and possibly they go down the path of self-harm and suicide. 
and then you lose your friend forever. So the best option is to lose your friend for a couple of months or a couple of years, but know they're alive. And it sounds harsh, but that's the reality of it sometimes is that we, we bury our heads in the sand and then it's too late. Um, as the years sort of grow, went on, I found myself running away from a lot of things. So this is, this is, I guess, me with starting to withdraw from the things I loved, uh, not going to footy training, um, running away from situations where there was conflict as well. So when I was um, going to arguments with friends, I'd find I'd run um, because I then I blamed it all on myself. I thought I was the problem um, and I still have those kind of feelings these days. I still feel that I'm the problem in any argument. So I, I basically don't speak up when I know there might be conflict because the easiest thing for me to do is just, internalize it a little bit because I'm just going to blame myself and feel worse. So I started to do that a lot. Through those eight years, it was the thoughts. It was the nightmares. So I basically have nightmares every two, three days, sometimes every night where I would actually try and take my own life in the, in the nightmare and I would wake up. So I'd basically pop out of a drain pipe in the in the nightmare, and uh, everyone I knew would be looking and laughing at me, and it was so realistic. Apart from the popping out of a drain pipe, it the the faces, the laughing, I could just feel it was really real. You know, hundreds of people that I knew, close I was close to, were laughing, saying you couldn't even. And I remember the words so well. You couldn't even do this right. That's how much of a fail you are. You couldn't even take your own life properly. And I remember those nightmares so well because they happened. It was the same thing over and over again, and it was so scary. The fact is, I never spoke about them. Not once did I ever bring them up with a friend or a family member. And that was probably the, the one thing that I wish I did do, even if I was to cop a bit of grief for it, because I might have found someone that would be able to relate to it a little bit better. And it turns out I, I would have, you know, within my extended family, I would have had someone and had support there. So, um, and that's the thing. If, if you are battling alone, you're not, you're not actually alone in this at all. There's so many people out there that can help you or bounce ideas off or, or just sit down and listen. That might have been through that before and I find there's so many similarities with mental illness but there also is so much complexity and difference in each other's stories as well. Uh, but it all comes down to a lot of self-worth and self-hate and stuff like that. So I basically hated who I was internally. Yeah, everything in life was, you know, I had friends. Oh, there was always a girl on the go. Um couple of those girls have now had kids. Um, shout out to those to those awesome awesome chicks um, in the last 12 months, 18 months. And, yeah, like life was seen to be perfect for me, but internally there was so much self-hatred right throughout those years and it was probably first picked up when I think it was under 13s or 14s when I got so angry I just punched the ground. It was angry. Uh, I was just at footy training or cricket training. I don't exactly remember. And I just got laughed at and it just felt like everything I was internalizing was true because I, I got laughed at for, you know, hurting myself. Um, and I continually, I guess I did that. I, I you know, I'd hurt myself because I, I felt like I was the blame for everything. And then as I got older, I just, I basically what, and what a lot of people did, they start, I started masking my, 
mental health problems with the, with alcohol. It was the best six to 12 hours, 18 hours of my, of my week uh, at the time because I just got to escape my thoughts for, for that period of time. But the worst thing was by one o'clock at night, Sunday morning, those thoughts came racing back and they were even worse. So, you know, I'd pass out and, you know, Sunday would be a write off and, It'd be a, a, it'd just be one big circle, one big loop of, of hatred for six days and then loving life for 18 hours and then wanting to end it a Sunday morning at one o'clock and making sure I was in my bed or called a friend who, you know, so amazing through that time, um, just to have someone there. So I didn't do anything I would regret because I was so scared. And that's the thing people, will try and like say just do this or do just do that. The fact is that and I've been through a lot of depression lately and currently and that's why I want to talk about this now and touch wood I haven't been suicidal at all. But it's so scary because you don't get it, you don't understand it, you don't want to go through it. But the choices you've made over this last six, twelve, eighteen months or even years have got you to that point. And at somewhere along the line you just lose track of how it happened and it's scary because you don't know how you're going to get it back or how much hard work it is you're going to get it back and that's that's basically where I was at I was so so invested in hating life that I didn't know how to enjoy it I didn't know how to have fun without going out to a nightclub and drinking myself silly Uh, and you know I was still running away from things and you know this is where I got my license and uh it was that was when I really started pulling out of things. I remember work quite occasionally. I would fall in sick, said I had gastro, and they were like, "No dramas, have two to three days off." But the realistic thing was, I couldn't actually physically get myself out of bed. No, sorry, mentally get myself physically get myself out of bed because I was mentally, I felt like concrete. I felt like, what's the point of me getting up? What the world can't use me today. The world, I'm not good enough to face the world today. If I go to work, if I go to footy, you know what? I'm going to fuck other people's life up somehow. And it sounds so irrational when I say it out loud now, but those are the thoughts that just repeat themselves. So the easiest thing to do is sleep. So I used to just sleep, sleep through work, sleep through footy training after I'd message. So I'd send a message, cow's way out, I know, but I was so scared that questions were going to be asked. Oh, what kind of sickness? Oh, how long will you be? Oh, and I just felt like the reason I didn't want to answer on the phone call is because I didn't want to be probed because I didn't want to turn around and go, you know what, I'm fucking suicidal. I don't want to live. I hate myself because then people would start going, I thought people would start going, oh, far out, one of those guys or, oh, geez, just attention-seeking, you know, are you? And that, so, so I hid. I hid from it. And that my excuse was I was sick. And, you know, people probably look back now and go, shit, if only we knew. But the fact is you can't change who you are or what you are for every person you've ever met. And that probably leads me on to the most important question that people ask is what could I have done more? And it's probably something that, you know, it's hard to hear, but there's nothing you could have done more. I know my mates would have loved to have done more. I know they hurt. They hurt when I talk about it. They hurt listening to this. They hurt, they hurt, they hurt knowing about it. And they don't need to tell me that. I, I know that. 
I know they care about me. And even though internally, even though even these days now where I go, nah, they, they'd be better off without me, I still know they care. And I know they would have gone through all these questions as did my family. And, you know, the fact of the matter is there's nothing else you can do. And it, and it breaks you. But with suicide, it's, it, it's something that takes over almost when you least expect it for some. And it's one of those, it's the most irrational, and I'll say it's the most irrational decision anyone can make. And I, I say that standing here as a source, sitting here as a suicide survivor, is it, is it, it was the most irrational part of my life. And I have a lot of irrational thoughts and negativity that go through my life day to day, but that was the most irrational thought. And there's nothing that anyone can do. It is, it is honestly luck. Because once someone gets that in their mind, they basically will try and find a way to do it when there's no, when they can't get caught, basically. And that's, that's the, that's the mindset it's in. And people always say it's selfish and it's actually the opposite to selfish. And I know, I know that I always see lots of posts about people talking about, you know, the first respondents, the family members and the friends and all of that and who see the body. And, and I, I, I understand that. And I understand the pain and the suffering and it's not fair. It isn't fair. And so much in life isn't fair. And I'll sit here now and I say, I don't agree with suicide. I don't agree with death, but it's a reality at the moment. And it's something that we need to do something about and harping on the first respondents and the family and the friends and stuff like that, as disrespectful as this might sound, can sometimes be the worst thing a suicidal person can hear because then they go, Oh, fuck. Like, what? I'm just going to, I'm failing no matter what. And that just sets off that negative mindset even further. So the aim is to get to zero suicides. Let's face it, that's my aim. You know, zero suicides a year, you know. But right now it's eight a day in Australia. And, you know, if we can get that back down to seven or six over the next couple of years, fantastic. Um, But what happens in that mindset is that people don't see anything clearly the only thing that basically goes through their head is that if i take my own life and this is for me this is exactly what happened for me and a lot of people i've spoken to about suicidal thoughts um suicide survivors is that they've all basically thought the same thing is that i'm doing this for everyone else this will make life better for everyone else. This will make it easier for everyone else because we don't feel worth anything. And, you know, there, there'll still be people out there that say that it's attention-seeking or whatnot, but the stats show it's not. What attention are you going to get when you're in a grave? That's not attention-seeking. And, you know, survivors, they're not attention-seeking either because they're people that tried maybe got lucky, maybe pulled out at the last minute and they don't remember, whatever it might be, they're not attention-seeking because the worst thing they, that happened after I tried to take my own life is I had to tell people. I had to face people. I had to face my friends. I had to face judgment and I had to face family judgment and I had to face external pressure, external judgment throughout sporting clubs. Now, I'm going to sit here right now and say I kind of deserve that. I'm not going to shy away from the fact that I had to answer questions that I didn't want to answer, and I did that, but I didn't want to do it. And that's the thing through the suicide attempt. It's not; it's a selfish thing from the outside, but it's such a selfless thing from the inside. 
Now I can sit here and you're right now and I understand the rippling effects of suicide and that's why I sit here today and I will do everything in my power I can to keep preventing people from taking their own lives and helping people with depression and anxiety and PTSD and bipolar and everything that gets fit under the mental health barrier right now. And, you know, these are the questions that people will ask is what could I have done? Um, no, so we keep going on the what could I have done better. Better frame of mind to sort of go forward with is what can I do now? You know, if someone has lost their life to suicide, then, you know, can I do something in their honour? Can I find a way to help raise money, raise awareness, reduce the stigma, you know, by speaking out about this person, remembering this person because they don't feel they were anything. Let's, let's make them like they were something. Remember them for who they were. Um, and that was advice I spoke to someone a couple of weeks ago is, you know, remember them. Don't, don't pretend they're not, don't pretend they didn't live. And we speak about that with all deaths, you know. Remember those times. Don't remember death. Remember all those amazing times you had with them. And go forward and, you know, think about what signs and symptoms there may have been. But because you are unaware, you couldn't pick them up. And that's the thing. If you don't understand it, you were never going to be able to pick that up. It was purely luck that was going to save them or save you. So learn from those instances, gain the knowledge moving forward. If you haven't lost someone to suicide, go out there and do research. Find out signs and symptoms. Ask your friends and family how they're going on a regular basis. It's going to sound very poor. After this podcast, Go and check on five, six, seven, eight, ten closest people. Just send a message. Hey, how you going? When they write back, respond. Right? Send a couple of texts. Make sure it's not just one text and you forget about them. Right? What what's happened over the last 15, 20 years is there's more TV channels, there's more TV shows. You know, you can record anything and anything. Phone, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, MySpace, LinkedIn, whatever it is out there is that we actually are not checking in with people properly. You know, we're not going for walks. We're not checking on our neighbours. We're not checking on our grandparents. We're not, you know, asking our kids how they are. We're letting them just sort of disappear on the, in the, into their rooms on their social media or whatnot, you know. We need to start having that family time and that time where we ask questions and we ask how people are going and sometimes we just need to sit there and be a family or be friends and whatnot. So it's all about learning and educating yourself to, I guess, bring those preventative measures in. And if you're doing that, that's that's all you can do. And, you know, people have, always, have asked that question and I'm like, well, think about it. What? Because they try and say, oh, I'm going to make sure I check on someone you know, every day. The facts are if you're going to do that with 30 or 40 or 50 people, you are going to burn out within a week. Do your mental health going to start suffering? But if everyone does it for two, three, four people once a week, once every fortnight, it will go a long way to, you know, helping the world. So, you know, I've got two or three mates that message me every on a weekly basis. I've got my fiance that asks me how I am every day. So people are checking on me and I'm honest with them about it all. Um, and then if people ask normally, I just say, this is how I am. I'm working on it. How are you? And, you know, I'll be honest, I sometimes get lost in the world of shit that goes on out there and I forget about what, what matters most and I forget to ask the important people how they are. 
and I apologize for that. Um, but I guess that's something that we're all working on together in this world and hopefully that is the best bit of advice I can give you going forward. We go to the last 24 hours before my suicide attempt and um, I actually spent the night before at a mate's house watching movies, playing Monopoly. Um, and I remember that night, and this is how well we hide stuff, or maybe don't, <laughs> is that and that night I would we have a few drinks. I actually, this is a definitely a, a warning symptom, a warning sign, is I actually was banging my head against the brick wall outside at one point, just banging it. I just wanted to be in pain. I felt I deserved pain. And I actually got a big scab on my, like scabby type blood on my head. And, um, and I walked in and they're like, oh, what happened? And I'm like, oh, I fucking just tripped and hit my head. What, is there something there? Um, no, Beth, it was fucking, it was honestly a great lie, like very believable. They were a laugh and, um, it went from there and ended up staying the night. And whew, this is, this is one of the toughest things ever is that. I woke up and the only thought in my mind was how I was going to take my own life. And 15 minutes, I remember just thinking basically nothing, except this is the best thing for everyone. Going forward, I'm not going to be missed. I'm I'm not worth being here. Um, and, I yeah, I attempted to take my own life. And I remember waking up and a guy had his hand on my shoulder and he's like, are you okay? And I could see tears rushing down his face and he knew, he knew what I'd tried to do. And, um, it was heartbreaking seeing someone that didn't know me at all cry because they cared. And that was probably one of the first moments that I realized what I'd done, you know, mattered. And there was people that cared because I woke up and I'm like, holy shit, I've got to explain this to my friends and my family. I said to this guy, if this is real life, I'm not good. I knew at that moment that that wasn't right what I'd just done. I, I basically had cut a snap point through a course of action and it was agony. It was so hard to face and, you know, there'll be people out there that say I deserve to face whatever it comes and to be honest, you do. You deserve whatever comes your way in life. You don't, to be honest, you actually don't deserve anything. You work for what you get. And the ambulance came and, you know, I had to call my parents and I don't remember whether the paramedics called my parents or not, whatnot, but I've spoken to my brother and mum about that and you can go back and listen to those podcasts. But that was that was a really, really tough period because then I had friends coming to the hospital and was trying to explain to them what I didn't even understand yet you know, diagnosed with depression, tried to take my own life. There were things I didn't comprehend at the time. And, you know, at that time, even all of us probably think, oh, it was just a month lead up to, to why this happened. But it was pretty quickly after I realized that it was eight years that led to that point in time. And quite often with suicide, it's not just a random, well, it's a, it's a random act at times. The previous years, months, contributing huge contributing factors and there will then be a trigger point to people's lives and people can go without mental health problems until the ages of 50 and then bang something happens in their life and they're like holy shit everything's changed i don't want to get out of bed i don't want to go to work and i so often speak to dads that have worked since they were 15 growing up growing up in that era where you work 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 don't talk don't talk don't talk have a beer have a beer have a beer 
see kids bare minimum and they get to an age and they're just like, what's the fucking point? And I have sworn a couple of times, but that's what happens to them. So dads, males, pull yourself back from time to time. Have that family time if you need to. Take a couple of days off work. Don't worry about the money. Have a couple of days off. Your family don't need the money as much as what they need you around for the rest of their life. Females, wives, girlfriends, husbands even, for um, support them in that, you know, help them with that. As males, we don't open up. We think we have to be the breadwinner all the time and that's the way we've grown up. And, you know, there's so much stuff out there about male violence and um, the way males treat women and I 100% it is we live in a world where what's happening needs to change. There is too many females that are losing their life to male violence and whatnot, and that's and there's too many females that are being treating, treated very poorly by males, and a lot of that's through the way we've grown up and habits that have been brought into our lives for many, many years. The way that we stand over women is very, very poor, and at times, I'll be honest, I feel that even some of I've got some of that. Well, I do. It's, it's inbred in us and ingrained in us and it's the habits we form. And so that needs to change. And, you know, males are more prone to suicide. So, you know, females and partners in the life need to sometimes take that step back and really help and maybe prevent some of this stuff that happens and, um, you know, sit down and talk about it as a family. Um, sit down and talk about it with your friends and work out together plans working forward, whether that be medication, um, psychologist, um, buying a pet, um, going for a daily walk, meditating, whatever it might be that helps in that relationship type scenario. Or And when I say relationship type scenario, I'm talking friends and family and stuff like that. So, yeah, kind of lost a little bit where I was up to because our dogs just went crazy before, so I've just edited their barking out. Um, but I really do hope that has helped someone out there that might be going through a suicidal time, uh, might have someone a past of suicide, might have someone that's going through suicidal thoughts, might have someone that's got depression or any mental health illness um, at all. You know, I'm very thankful that I'm still here and I get to share my story because it will hopefully help a lot of people. Uh, so that's it for today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening and thank you. Have a super day. Thanks for listening to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. If anything in this podcast has brought up difficult feelings, please call Lifeline on 13-1144. For any further information or if you want to bring your story to life, contact Shane at shane at vitalityfit.com.au. That's V-I-T-A-L-I-T-Y-F-I-T-T dot com dot A-U.